The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Oh, good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. Um, appreciate you being here for our study this morning. We're going to look at what Paul taught the church in Thessalonica about the second coming of Christ. Just kind of focus on what he was teaching them. And so let's start by looking at, first of all, the founding of this church. And this is what Anthony read in uh, Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, the city of Thessalonica was founded in about 315 B.C. and was named in honor of Philip II's daughter, Thessalonicus. It was a trading city of about 200,000 people. It was the capital of Macedonia. Three great rivers ran through it, and they converged into the sea there, so it was a very important port. Also, the Ignatian Highway ran right through the middle of Thessalonica. We see it there. It's up in the Aegean Sea up there. There's Thessalonica, all right? So everyone traveling east or west would come through the city. It was populated by Greeks, by Roman citizens, by Jews, and by Orientals. And we see here the influence that the Jewish religion had on these population because Paul gets there and there's a synagogue there, all right? Now, you know the first thing he did when he got there was he went to the synagogue, you know? And it might not even, a, even if he didn't get there on a Friday night, you know, ready for synagogue, I think he would have went to the synagogue anyway because there probably would have been some people there. It wasn't just a Saturday thing. But it says there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom. This is what he did everywhere he went. He went into the synagogue. He would start his ministry there. And the reason he did that is because he knew there he would find people who had an interest in the Scriptures, some knowledge of the Scriptures. There he would be able to find those people that are looking for Messiah. Alright, so that's where we'll start. We'll get in there and we'll see what's going on there. Verse 3 says, Explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Yeshua, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, he gets there and he explains to them. This word means to open. This is the same word Luke used of God opening the, the disciples' eyes to the Word of God in Luke 24, 31. He opened their eyes. Now, this is what he's doing. He's explaining. He's opening their eyes to what's going on. He's explaining the Hebrew prophecies that they knew. And it says, and proving, and literally this means to place before or alongside. So what he was doing, he says, look at these messianic prophecies. Here they are. They talk about Christ. Now, look at the life of Christ. Now I'll put them together and one overlays the other and you can see these prophecies are about Yeshua. And what we have here in verse 3 is a rhetorical syllogism. Now syllogism is a logical argument. That's why people don't use them anymore. Okay? <laughs> it's a logical argument. It's a formula consisting of a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. For example, major premise, only God can forgive sin. Everybody on track with that? 
Everybody agree with that? Minor premise. Yeshua forgave men's sins. Everybody agree with that? What's the conclusion? Yeshua is God. Very good, class. Okay? That, that's how these things work, alright? In verse 3, the major premise is this. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So the major premise would be the characteristic of the Christ, the Messiah, that's what Christ means, Messiah, are that He must suffer and rise from the dead. Okay, that's the major premise. The minor premise, Yeshua modeled these characteristics in His death and resurrection. Right? So what's the conclusion? Yeshua is the Christ. Very good, class. This is good. You, you guys got it, alright? That's, that's, that's clear, alright? And that's what Paul's saying. He's proving this. Here's your Scriptures. Here's Christ. Look at He modeled it. And the most convincing argument for the truth of who Yeshua is is the absolute and total fulfillment of prophecy. There are over a thousand prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. He says in verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So, who is the them here? Well, the them goes back to verse 1. It's the Jews. Some of the Jews were persuaded. They heard his, they heard his argument. They looked at the prophecies. They looked at Christ's life. and They go, yeah, he's the Christ. They believe Paul's words and they put their faith in Yeshua. But not only Jews believe Paul's message, but also did a great many of devout Greeks. Now, devout Greeks here points to a, a class of monotheistic Gentiles who worship the God of Israel. All right, they had put their trust in Him. They attend synagogue. They observe Sabbath. They they were proselytes to Israel. All right. Now, verse five says, "But the Jews were jealous, <laughs> and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar." So here comes the gospel. Here comes the uproar. All right. They set the city in uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, it seems like every time Paul finished teaching in the synagogue, the next verse opens with, but the Jews. Okay? We see this over and over in the book of Acts. And these Jews, like Jonah of old, like the people of Nazareth, like the Jews of Jerusalem later on, were greatly angered that a salvation of the Jews was being offered to Gentiles. They were fine as long as you stuck with Jews, but when Paul talked about going to the Gentiles, that's when the riots started. They were placed because the Gentiles were placing their trust in Christ. Now you would think that Paul would avoid the Jewish synagogue after a while, you know, especially since he'd be still hurting from the beating he got in Philippi. See, right before Acts 17, we got Acts 16. Paul's in Philippi. They beat him. Well, he goes on, you know, to Thessalonica. Does the same thing again. You're like, Paul, you're not too sharp here. Come on. No, he's courageous. He's brave. And he doesn't care what happens to him. He's on a mission to get the gospel out. So, <clears throat> so this mob assaulted the house of Jason, where the apostles were staying. And they sought to bring them out to the people. All right, so what we see is that Paul goes into synagogue, preaches the gospel, causes a riot, run out of the city. All right, that's the book of Acts over and over and over and over, all right? 
<coughs> now, we really don't learn much about the Thessalonians from this text in Acts. But one thing we do learn is that many of them believed Paul's preaching, they came to faith in Christ, and a church was planted there. All right? Now, what I want to do this morning is to look at the results of Paul, Silas, and Timothy's visit to Thessalonica. And we learn much about the believers in Thessalonica in the two letters that Paul wrote to them. 1 Thessalonians 1.1 To Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Yeshua the Christ, grace to you and peace. Alright, these are the three men who on Paul's second missionary journey brought the gospel to the people of Thessalonica. Paul is here writing to the church now. And anybody know what's really special about the letter to the Thessalonians? This is the first letter Paul wrote. This is the first book written in the New Testament. All right? First letter that was written. On the second missionary journey, Paul and his companions were driven out of Thessalonica by persecution after a brief stay there. And so he and his companions were forced to leave, and they go to Berea, where they again start the same thing. Now, while Paul was in Athens, he tried to go back to Thessalonica, but the text says this, because I wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So at least twice, Paul tried to return to the believers there, but Satan hindered him. So while Paul was waiting in Athens, he says, i got to know what's going on there. So he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how those new converts were doing. Timothy, you go down there, you bring back a report. So 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. Alright, so they sent Timothy. Now while Timothy was in Thessalonica, Paul went to Corinth and began his ministry there in the city of Corinth. While Paul was in Corinth, Timothy comes back from Thessalonica to bring him a report, and he brings this glorious report back. And when Paul heard it, he sits down and writes the first letter to the Thessalonians. After about five months, Paul wrote a second letter to them from Corinth because of a misunderstanding that had arisen in the church that he was trying to correct. And these are the very first letters of the New Testament. Uh, any date is approximate, but most people think it's probably about AD 51, 52. So this is the first of the New Testament. But what is really convicting here is that these two letters are written to new converts, all right? Many of whom have come out of pagan idolatry. These Christians at Thessalonica have not even been Christians for a year yet. They're only several months old in the Lord when Paul writes these letters. And yet, when you read these letters and you look at the doctrinal content in these epistles, it is almost unbelievable. Almost every major doctrine of the Christian faith is mentioned in these two epistles. The amount of doctrine taught in the short span of time clearly demonstrates the priority that Paul placed on the doctrines of the Word of God. These new converts out of pagan idolatry have a solid understanding of Christian doctrine. I read an article last week from, I can't even remember who, it was from one of the major Christian groups. One of the men in that group wrote a letter saying that Christianity today is worshiping the idols of music groups 
They're all into emotion. They've forsaken doctrine, and the church is just a shallow pool of emotions now. And I was like, Poor, this, is, this is good. You know, I mean, some good stuff there. But he, and he was talking about you know, their own group and other groups that it's just, you know, we're leading the way. And he goes, that's just a sad thing. But it wasn't true here, okay? These people aren't all hype on emotions. They knew doctrine. You know, many Christians today, even though they have been Christians for decades, don't know enough about the Bible to even discuss it. But here are these new converts, many of whom have been worshiping idols all their lives, have a good grasp on Christian theology in less than a year. Paul speaks to them about the doctrines of salvation, of assurance, of sanctification, of election, of the Trinity, of the nature of man, on the judgment of God, and on the second coming. He writes these things to them, though they were perfectly familiar with them. Like, yeah, you guys understand all this, so let me just, you know. Obviously, in the short time he was there, he spent some time teaching. He didn't put up a tent and do healings. Didn't have a light show and have some great music come in. He just taught them the Bible. Notice what Paul says to them. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know this stuff. He says, you guys are aware of eschatology. Then in the second letter, referring to the events that would precede the second coming, Paul writes this. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. Okay, so they, they've been taught this. Paul, when preaching in Thessalonica, obviously preached the judgment of God and the return of the Lord and their accountability to Him. So they knew all about the second coming of Christ. This is a remarkable thing. Because how many Christians can you say that of today? You try to talk to somebody about this today. The only thing they know for sure is coming yet in the future. Okay, we're sure of that. Other than that, we're kind of fuzzy on all the details there, all right? And if you try to engage them in a conversation, it's hard because, like I said, they don't know enough Bible to have a conversation about it. These converts are less than a year old. They didn't have a New Testament. It wasn't written yet. It was just being written. All they had was portions of the Tanakh and the teachings of Paul. Compare them with us. We have complete Bible, you know, and every imaginable Bible study tool you can get your hands on. We have Bibles on the computer. We can search things. You know, I remember the old days before computers. You'd use a strong concordance, and you'd look at every place that word was used. Now I click on, I highlight the word, and I hit search, and boom, every place it's used, it pulls it up. I mean, it's incredible. Got the Bible on my phone. Got commentaries on my phone. Got Hebrew and Greek lexicons on my phone. I mean, literally, I can read and study wherever I go. I mean, we have so much available to us, and yet it appears they knew way more than we do. Because to them, it was learning what they could, grabbing every available thing. Well, to us, it's just like, yeah, we got it. If we ever get around to it, we might read it. Well, after Paul left this brand new church, these new converts were subject to severe persecution. Now, you got to hang on to that. Okay, we saw it in the very scripture that we read. All right, Paul comes in, preaches, and all of the Jews start persecuting. There's trouble. These young Christians 
are being persecuted severely for their faith. Hang on to that thought. That's extremely important, okay? Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Yeshua that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things for your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. All right, they were suffering. You guys are doing the same thing. You're suffering too. Who killed both the Lord Yeshua and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So those in Thessalonica were experiencing the same suffering as the first Christians in Judea suffered. Now, I think you're all familiar with that. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that as soon as the Christians started preaching the gospel, they were suffering for it. We see in Acts 5.40, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to speak in the name of Yeshua no more, and they let them go. So don't speak anymore. We're going to beat you. What did they do? Oh, thank you, Lord, for letting us get beat. We're going to keep preaching. Give us boldness. Ah, it blows my mind, you know, when I read that. They're beat, they're persecuted, and what they pray for, give us boldness. They didn't say, Lord, judge those people. Lord, destroy them, protect us. None of them. Give us boldness so we keep doing what we're doing and keep getting beat. <laughs> then we see that Stephen is stoned to death. Saul tried to destroy the church. Acts 8.1. And Saul approved of his execution. Speaking of Stephen... And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So on that day, that day is emphatic here in the Greek text, referring to the day that Stephen was stoned. On that day, a great persecution arose against the church. In Acts 8.3 it says, And Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Ravaging. This is from the Greek word lomidomai, which literally means to exercise brutal and sadistic cruelty. He hated these Christians, Saul did. Then he became one. That's cool. Now that's how you know it's a God thing, okay? He hates them, and then all of a sudden, hey, I am one now. <laughs> now I get to be beaten, persecuted, all right? In the midst of all this talk about suffering and persecution, a major theme arises in the study and reading of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And that theme is the return of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. The subject of the return of Christ is found at the close of every chapter of this first letter. Every chapter. And the idea is you guys are suffering. Let me show you about the second coming. Why? Because that's going to comfort you. <laughs> okay? Concerning Christ's coming, there's a twofold emphasis on both confident expectation along with a call to live in readiness in light of the imminent coming. Now, as we read the Bible, we've got to keep in mind the hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. You know, if this is one thing you want to teach people, and if you don't want to get into you know, eschatology with them, just teach them about audience relevance. Cur encourage them about understanding that. You know, you have to understand to seek to discover what did the original audience understand this to mean? Because the concern of the interpreter is to understand the grammar of a passage in light of the historical circumstances and the context of the original audience. The Bible is not written to us. It's written for us, it's not written to us. 
I've had some Christians flip out on me when I say that. I mean literally, okay? They think the Bible's written to us. Yes, it's to us. You know, and it's quite simple to show them otherwise. I was discussing this subject with a man one time, and he said, all the Bible's written to us. I said, all of it. He said, all of it. I said, okay, well, let's look at this first. Joshua 6.3, I said, you shall march around the city. All the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. I asked him, who's the you in this verse? He said, it's us. Yeah, he said, it's us. I said, so we're supposed to march around Jericho? He said, yes. And at that point, I said, we're done talking. This is ridiculous. This is an absolute insane view. I don't think he actually believed that, although he said that he did. He just knew that if he admitted it wasn't written to us, okay, I've opened the door here to some trouble, so i got to stick with my ground, okay? And then you, you want to take people and say, what do you do with this verse, Joshua 6.25? Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Is Rahab still living in Israel today? Well, she must be. She's got to be over 3,500 years old, okay? And some people, to prove their point, will want to argue for a 3,500-year-old woman, you know. We know it's ridiculous. Why does the Bible say she's living in Israel today when she isn't? Because when the book of Joshua was written, she was still living in Israel. This statement is true and accurate when it was written. But to us, 3,500 years later, it's got to be viewed in light of the original audience. Now, that's an extreme case I'm giving you here. But, I mean, people will even want to, like I said, I've argued with, about this with people. So let me ask you a real difficult question here. It's going to take some thought, all right? So take your time. Think about this. Who are the letters to the first and second Thessalonians written to? <laughs> Can we get back to you on that? Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray about it. All right? Listen, and this is what I try to tell people, you know, when I say, the, the Bible's not written to you. What? I say, are you a Philippian? Are you an Ephesian? You a Roman? You a Thessalonian? Where's the book that says to the believers in Virginia Beach, Virginia? Where's that book? It's not there, right? But people don't get that, okay? This is written to real people that lived in Thessalonica in the first century, okay? They're written to believers who lived there, who are dealing with real circumstances. These young converts were suffering greatly for their faith in Christ. We've already seen that. So when Timothy comes back to Paul, he reports that there's a lot of suffering for these new believers. Their property is being confiscated. They're being beaten and imprisoned. Yet in the midst of it all, they're staying true to Christ. They're honoring God. They're glorifying God. They bring back a glowing report. Timothy also reported that they had a huge problem. The problem was they're looking for the coming of the Lord and waiting for the Son of God from heaven. But in the meantime, some of their loved ones were dying. Their families were breaking up. And the Lord had not come, and so they wanted to know, well, we're waiting for the Lord, we're waiting for the kingdom, but they died. Are they going to miss out? So Paul wrote the first letter to the church of Thessalonica. And the most impressive topic of the Thessalonian gospel from what we can gather from these letters was the coming of the Lord in His heavenly kingdom. This letter is loaded with eschatology. 
It was evidently the topic of frequent conversation when Paul was in Macedonia. Eschatology is a major theological issue, not just in Thessalonica, but in all Scripture. R.C. Sproul says, two-thirds of the New Testament is either directly or indirectly eschatological. Two-thirds. Other experts say that 25 to 30 percent of the whole Bible is eschatological. And the funny thing is, Heiser says he doesn't care about eschatology. That's a lot of the Bible you don't care about, because it's everywhere, okay? Every one of these five chapters in this letter, as I said, ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ. So with audience relevance in mind, let's, uh, let's look at some of these texts. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, who He raised from the dead, Yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now the faith of the Thessalonian believers is summed up here with these two sayings. First of all, they were serving the Lord, they were serving the living and true God, and secondly, they were waiting for His Son from heaven. Now, how did they wait for His Son? Were they, they mean they're waiting in the graves? They didn't serve from the graves. So he said, you're serving God and you're waiting for a son. While they're on earth, living and breathing, they were waiting for the second coming of Christ. First century Thessalonians. Listen, they expected the coming in their lifetime. That's why they're looking and waiting. Where did they get this crazy idea that the Lord was coming back in their lifetime? Well, they got it from Paul, who taught them this stuff. And Paul got it from... Yeshua, okay? Notice what Yeshua says in Mark 13.30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Yeshua tells his disciples very plainly, very clearly, these things are going to happen before this generation, a 40-year period, would end. And this includes, if you look back in the text, the gospel being preached to all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man, all this is going to happen... So it is so clear that this troubles people. It bothers them because it doesn't fit their eschatological viewpoint. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. He says, The apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proved to be false. All right? That's one of the more mildest. You know, right, he goes on. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. He sees it. Anybody with half a brain sees the first century guys expected something in their lifetime. Now watch. And worse still, they had a reason. And one which you're going to find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. Okay, so he says, listen, the apocalyptic beliefs, they, those were false. All right, they thought he was coming in their lifetime. Yeshua gave them this delusion. He goes on to say, He said in so many words, speaking of Yeshua, This generation shall not pass away, all things be done. And he was wrong. Lewis, come on. He, look at, he clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. This is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. This is from the essay, The World's Last Night found in the Essential C.S. Lewis, page 385. 
I didn't believe this. I've heard this quote from other people, so I went to the library and got this book and looked it up. That's what it says. You know, well, the thing is, he sees that the first century Christians and Yeshua taught a first century coming. And he didn't believe it happened, so he said, well, obviously they were wrong. Now, listen, to deny the time statements that the Bible gives of the second coming is to deny inspiration. Okay, they're part of inspiration. But because of his physical view of the nature of the second coming, he couldn't believe this clear time statement. It contradicted what he believed. So he went with his beliefs other than the Bible. He felt it hadn't happened yet, and therefore he says, Yeshua's wrong. Now that would be, in fact, much more than embarrassing if Yeshua's wrong. It would be devastating to the Christian faith. Devastating to the credibility of Yeshua. If Yeshua was wrong, as Lewis says, my question would be, what else is he wrong about? If I can't trust him about that, am I going to trust him with my salvation? What if he is wrong about saying that anyone who believes in him would have everlasting life? What if he was wrong about that? Relax. Yeshua wasn't wrong. Lewis is wrong, okay? He's the one that's wrong. We can count on the truthfulness of what Yeshua tells me. When I first became a preterist, that was to me one of the most encouraging things that don't have to try to twist and distort some of the time statements anymore. We can just say, you know what? He said it and I believe it and that's the end of it. Don't need charts, don't need graphs, don't need all that stuff anymore. Just need to believe what you read. All right, let's go back to the Thessalonian passage. We're still in chapter 1 here. He says, Yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the wrath that Yeshua predicted would come upon Jerusalem. Who's the us here? Who is he going to deliver from the wrath? Paul is writing to Thessalonians. So he says, who delivers us? Well, it's Paul and the Thessalonians. He's going to deliver them, which means they would have to be around during the wrath to get delivered. Look what Luke says in 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you, the people who live there, okay? You're going to see, not us on TV, it's not talking about TV here, okay? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. Ah, that makes sense. There's an army coming. We're in trouble. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let those who are out in the country not enter it, okay? When you see it, clearly a reference to 8070, destruction of Jerusalem, the you here is the first century believers. So he's talking about the Jewish temple in the first century. Now notice what he says next. For these are the days of vengeance. The vengeance of God on Jerusalem, what he promised, what he talked so much about. Watch, to fulfill all that is written. What? What he's saying here is very significant. He tells us here that all things that are written will be fulfilled when the temple's destroyed. What does he mean by all things which are written? That's a reference to all prophecy. All prophecy was to be fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. That makes the temple's destruction in 8070 a very significant event for all Christians. Everything that was prophesied happened and was fulfilled in the fall. Please consider the weight of that. Yeshua goes on to say, Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. The coming wrath was on Israel. That's who this people is referring to. The parousia of Yeshua is associated with judgment. Now, 
Here's where people get confused. They hear about the coming of Christ, and they say, Christ is coming on a cloud. And somehow in their minds, they have a biological man standing on a cloud, I guess a white puffy cloud, and he's coming in judgment on Jerusalem. When Christ came in judgment, there was no bodily form floating on a cloud, a cloud, okay? He was coming, he was coming in judgment, his coming would be manifest in the judgment. We would understand this if we started at the beginning of the Bible instead of the last quarter, the New Testament, because that's what Christians do. And a lot of churches, you know, they'll have Bibles for their people and they'll have the New Testament. Don't you want us to know the rest of it? Okay, you can't, you can't understand it with just the New Testament. Because all their language comes from the first three quarters of the Bible, the Tanakh. And so we have to understand what they're talking about. And so we read the coming on the clouds, and right away we get, I know what a cloud is, I know what coming, I know what a... Yeah, I see this man surfing on a cloud. The coming was wrath on Israel. That's who this people's referring to. All right? So when Christ came, they didn't see any bodily form. Let's go back to the Tanakh to pick up this familiar phrase, coming on clouds, and understand it. Let's go to Isaiah 19.1. People, I think if you just get this in Isaiah 19 here, and understand the whole idea, an oracle concerning Egypt. An oracle is a judgment. All right, This is a judgment against Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. All right? And comes to Egypt. Yahweh's coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So Yeshua said he's going to come on a cloud. Here, Yahweh's riding a cloud. When the Bible speaks of Yahweh riding a cloud, it speaks of judgment. That's what cloud coming means. A coming in judgment. The Egyptians didn't see Yahweh on a cloud. And they didn't look up and say, oh, we're in trouble. Look at it. Here comes that cloud with Yahweh riding on it. We know from chapter 20 that the judgment came from the Assyrians. Let's go to chapter 20, verse 1. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. The Assyrians are the instrument of Yahweh's wrath but the text says, Yahweh's riding on a swift cloud. He comes to Egypt. Nobody saw him. They saw the Assyrians. All right? The, the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. They didn't see him. His presence was manifest through the Assyrians. Now, we have to take that understanding and go to the New Testament with it. Okay? There's, there's so much more going on in this text here. Baal. The god Baal was the cloud rider. Okay, that was his designation. Everybody knew Baal's the cloud rider. So when the writers of the Bible say, Yahweh's coming on a swift cloud, they're saying, Baal, he's nothing. Okay, Yahweh is the true cloud rider. He's the one who brings judgment. These are polemic. They're slamming these false gods is what they're doing when they write this kind of stuff. All right, let's go back to Thessalonians. All right, so that's when, when you see a cloud coming, his judgment's coming. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before the Lord Yeshua? At the coming is it not you. So the end of chapter 1, he talked about the coming. End of chapter 2, again, he talks about the coming. Our Lord Yeshua at his coming, is it not you? The you here is the first century Thessalonians. 
They were going to be there when he came. Chapter 3, the ending. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Yeshua with all his saints. When is he going to establish their hearts blameless? At his coming. That's why they're looking for it. That's why he, he talked about it over and over. Let's go to chapter 4. This is a very familiar passage. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. We said this was a problem. Their relatives are dying. They're wondering what's going to happen. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, even so, through Yeshua, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, don't worry about your loved ones. He's going to take care of that. Those that are asleep here, they have died, but don't worry about them. Because God's going to bring them. They're not going to get left out. It appears that the Thessalonians were concerned about their departed loved ones. So Paul reassures them by telling them, don't worry, Christ will take care of them. We who are alive are going to rise, he's going to get them also. <coughs> this is directed specifically toward the first century Thessalonians. For this we declare to you, by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, we, Paul, the Thessalonians, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So, you know, we're, here we are, us, you, me, us, alive at the coming of the Lord. will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Don't worry, He'll bring them. We who are alive, who are left, is indeed a time statement. For the we must be seen as a collective group of Paul and his audience. That's the we. Paul and the Thessalonians. They're expecting the return of Christ in their lifetime. This is so clear throughout the book. 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that this is called apocalyptic language. It's speaking of judgment. Comparing this text to a parallel text in Matthew 24, I think will help us understand the meaning. Let's go to Matthew 24 real quickly here. 30 and 31, he says, Then will appear in heaven a sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. There's this cloud coming. All right, and people today will say, Well, we can do this now because of television, you know, and everyone can look at the same time and see him coming. And, you know, and they try to explain all this. Well, he wasn't talking to us about this. Coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they'll gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That should sound familiar to you, all right? Because it's parallel to the text in Thessalonians. Matthew 24, Yeshua predicted his coming to gather the saints in that generation. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Paul spoke of the same coming of the Lord to gather the saints. So we have to ask, how many comings are there of the Lord with His angels in fire, in power, to gather the saints? Is there more than one coming? No, it's just one. Alright? The conclusion is inescapable. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is dealing with the exact same coming judgment and gathering as Matthew 24. Alright? Verse 17. Then we who are alive, we, that's Paul, the Thessalonians, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. The words caught up here, harpazo, this is where people get the idea of rapture. means to snatch away. It's where the rapture idea comes from. 
But being caught up here means something different than levitation of the physical body from the earth. All right? Remember, this being caught up happens after the second coming. All right? All right, let's go to chapter 5 in the end. Now, may, so every chapter so far, he ends with talking about this coming. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. So the you and the your here is first century Thessalonians. This is a prayer that they'd still be in their biological bodies when the Lord returned. See, physical death separates the spirit from the body. To be preserved complete is to still be alive when the Lord returned. Now, after that first epistle was written, there came a report to Paul about some doctrinal issues. So he wrote a second letter to correct those misconceptions. We'll look at that in a second here. <clears throat> but first, I want to show you something in the first chapter that he speaks about their suffering. Okay, again, it was real. They were hurting. And so he comforts them with what doctrine? You're, you're hurting, you're suffering, and so, you know, God, you need comfort, and here's the comfort. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 through 8. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you endure. Man, you guys are, you guys are standing strong. You're being persecuted. You're being afflicted. Now watch. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Again, they're suffering. They're going through great agony. He goes on, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So they're being afflicted and God's saying, God's going to repay them, the ones that are afflicting you. And He's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Good. We're finally going to get some relief. When? When's the relief going to come? When is God going to grant them relief? Watch. When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. This should really bother you if you don't believe the second coming happened in 8070. Here's suffering group of people. And He says, don't worry. It's all going to be taken care of when the Lord comes. They hadn't come yet. These people are dust. Okay, they're gone. So basically, this is a false hope. This is, this is very damaging, I think, if you just let it say what it's saying. He's comforting suffering Christians with the doctrine of the second coming. Paul says they'll have relief from their suffering at the second coming. And if that, if it hasn't happened, if it's future, we have a problem. He's giving false hope. So then how can we believe anything Paul says? If he's lying to them, if he's... You know, he's just trying to be nice to them. You guys, there's no really hope for you. You just suffer right to the to you're dead. The Lord's going to fix it when he comes back. Not for a couple thousand years, so it won't really do you any good. But he's trying to encourage them, right? That's not too encouraging. If Yeshua didn't come in the lifetime of those first century Thessalonians and give them relief from their persecution as Paul promised them, then he lied to them. If his prediction failed, Paul's a false prophet. And he's a cruel false prophet. That's a problem in our text, and it's unavoidable. Like I said, the first 
First Thessalonians talks about second coming every chapter. Now he's saying, don't worry, guys. Let me comfort you. Let me give you some hope. The Lord is going to come. He's going to give you relief. It seems that somebody wrote one or more fictitious letters to the Thessalonians, and they signed Paul's name to them. And then they circulated them around the Thessalonian church. And the forgery obviously was saying that the second coming had already happened. All right? So people were writing and say, hey, guys, second coming already happened. This is causing a lot of difficulty to them, to the believers in Thessalonica, because they're like, it already happened? We missed it? We're still suffering? Things haven't changed? What's happening here? So Paul writes 2 Thessalonians in that letter to correct this misunderstanding. Notice that Paul closes 2 Thessalonians' letter with this. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. So what's he telling them? Those aren't my letters, people. When I write, you'll see the sign at the end. I sign my letters. He had an amanuensis secretary write this stuff down. He would take the pen and he would close it off so they knew it's from him. He says, you can easily tell a genuine letter. I'll always close it in my own handwriting. I'll sign it with my own hand. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua. So you get the subject. What's he talking about? The coming of the Lord Yeshua. Again, talking to the first century believers. The Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. See, some people, they're writing, the day of the Lord's come, it's happened, you missed it. Now, listen what this verse does. They thought it happened, right? This verse shatters the paradigm that views the second coming as a fiery destruction of the whole earth. God's going to come burn up the whole earth, you know, make something new, and we start all over. If the Thessalonians believed that the nature of the second coming was an earth-burning, total destruction of planet earth, how could they have been deceived about it? I mean, think about that. Think about how most people think of the second coming. And they think it already happened. And they know about the second coming. Paul taught them all about this. And they're like, do we miss it? If the second coming was as many view it today, Paul would have just written back to them and said, guys, look out the window. Okay, everything's still there. The planet hasn't been burned up. We're all good. No, it hasn't come. They thought it already happened. So they must have viewed the nature differently than folks do today. Had to be a different nature. And people, if you can allow a crack in this earth-burning second coming paradigm, you might begin to understand the second coming. And this is a great verse to start. They thought it already happened, and yet they're going on, you know, nothing's burned up, everything's like it was. Whenever I talk about the time statements in Scripture, the inevitable verse comes up, 2 Peter 3.8, A day of the Lord is a thousand years. All right? God is not bound by time. I agree, He's not. But He's not writing a letter to Himself. He writes letters to men who are bound by time, who understand time, and it's very, time is very important to us. Okay, So to say that you know, God is not bound by time doesn't affect the writings that He writes to men. Because men are. And He's writing to us. As we've seen, the second coming was eminent in the first century. 
But let me ask you this. Was it eminent before the first century? No, it wasn't. So, see, eminence means something. When, you, when eminent means some 2,000 years, there's no eminence there, okay? The fact is that what God said was near to the apostles. He said was not near to the earlier prophets. In Daniel 8.26, the vision of the evening and the morning that has been told you is true. He's given Daniel this vision. Now watch what he says. But seal up the vision. In other words, don't tell people this. Why? For it refers to many days from now. This was written in the 6th century B.C. And the vision pertained to many days from now. In other words, it's a long way off. So keep it secret. Keep it sealed up. Now, we go to Revelation 22.10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book. Why? The time is near. This is written in the first century. And the time of the vision was near. What God said was far away in Daniel's time. He said was near in the apostles' time. The implication is inescapable. Soon means soon. Near means near. This generation means this generation. And the thing is, people, I don't know how many different ways he could have said near. You know, he told the apostles, some of you standing here will not die until I come. Okay, that kind of narrows it down. You know, then he says soon, quickly, shortly, at hand, this generation. I mean, he used every conceivable time, but God does not care about time. But he used every time reference he could to try to show people it's coming quick. These events were eminent in the first century. The believers at Thessalonica were waiting for the coming of Christ. They expected in their lifetime because that's what Paul taught them. And they were not wrong. It happened in their lifetime. But it was a very different nature than people expect today. He came in judgment upon the city of Jerusalem, ending the Old Covenant, ending Judaism, brought in the New Covenant in its fullness. Change of covenants. That's what the coming was about. He came in judgment, not on some cloud. God gave them rest from their affliction by destroying the Jewish temple, the nation, and the people. And those who oppose the first century return of Christ will often accuse us of not believing in the second coming. I've been accused of it. Oh, he doesn't believe in the second coming. I absolutely believe in the second coming. I just believe it's past, not future. That doesn't mean I don't believe it. Okay? To deny the fact of the second coming is to deny the inspiration of Scripture. Do you agree with that? You can't say he never said he was going to come in. Man, that, like I said, that R.C. Sproul, two-thirds of the New Testament is about the coming. All right? So you can't deny that fact. But here's the thing that people miss. To deny the time statements that the Bible gives of the second coming is also to deny inspiration. You can't have it both ways, people. Those time statements are connected with every time he talks about coming. I believe the time statements of the second coming are just as clear as the fact of the second coming. What God said was soon, is soon. Okay? That's the end of it. If he says it's soon, it's soon. It was soon to them. And if you have a hard time wrapping your head around it, you have to understand the nature is not what most people think today. It was a coming in judgment against Jerusalem. It wasn't coming you know, to burn up the whole earth and destroy the whole earth. And he wasn't riding on any cloud. He's not going to be riding on any cloud. Okay? Just learn what those biblical phrases mean and we'll be much further ahead. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank You today for Your Word. Lord, it seems so clear to me. (laughs) I pray that You would open my eyes if I'm wrong and show me the truth, Lord. I pray You'd all give us the heart of Bereans, that we would be willing to search the Scripture and allow it to say what it says. Father, thank You for Your grace to us. Lord, I, I find great comfort in the fact that You made promises that You very specifically kept. You can be trusted. You weren't wrong, as C.S. Lewis says. You are right on. You always are right on. We can trust you. We can trust your prophets. We can trust the writings of Scripture. That brings us confidence, Lord. Thank you for that. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right, questions, comments. (laughs) I see those hands all over the auditorium. (laughs) David. So I never really thought about this before, but so Christ coming in judgment on Israel, um, which I guess was manifested in the Jewish-Roman wars, how did that bring relief to the Thessalonians? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. You know, here's the thing. There was people outside of Jerusalem, there was people scattered all over the world that when that coming happened, okay, when that temple was shut down, when that sacrifice stuff was ended that relieved the persecution because they pointed to this this is what christ talked about this is what came and a lot of the you know was jewish persecution they were receiving even in the other places and so this this disrupted the world their known world okay that come the coming down of that temple was everything to judaism that is where god lived okay that was god's home in other words god just got beat he just got whooped. His temple was destroyed. Where's his house now? It was That is so huge when we understand that. You know, to us, oh, a city got destroyed. That happens all the time. No. So I guess Worldwide, it was devastating. Shaken. There wasn't a place for Paul to go and get a letter of introduction from the Sanhedrin to say, hey, this guy's got the truth. They were gone. Yep. Yep, they were shut down, and that's you know that's where the persecution was stemming from because they were so mad that you were preaching their gospel to Gentiles. Right. They didn't know what to do, basically. Yeah, no authority. Yeah. Derek. Well, um, back in Isaiah 19, you were talking about the uh, three things there: the coming on the cloud, and the idols shaking, and the hearts melting. Now, did they really believe? They really believe that Jesus is coming, riding a cloud. But did they really believe? I mean, it's in the same context there that the people's hearts would actually melt inside. Well, that's the thing. There's not. They're not really consistent. Right. You know? yeah. Okay. We get. And that's the thing. People say you got to interpret the Bible literally. <laughs> but when we do. Well, no. You don't, because you have to understand the language that it was written in, understand the meaning of things. You know, you read about Leviathan, and you say, see, there's this certain monster that lives in the sea. That is a picture of chaos. That's what they would think. Leviathan is chaos. God conquers chaos. Not actual Leviathan coming out of the sea. And you read that stuff in the New Testament. People say the stars. They think the literal stars are going to just fall out of the sky. I mean, they don't understand the language of Scripture. And you can't take everything literally. Okay? We have to understand there's different kinds of genre. All right? And we have to, if it's didactic, then that's a different story. 
But when it's apocalyptic, it's meant to be exaggerated. So you see this great destruction. But yeah, they're inconsistent. You know, did, uh, did these people's hearts, you know, like just the muscle just melted and, you know, at God's presence? But, you know, God wasn't even there because it was the Assyrians that they saw come in and the Assyrians were the one beating them just like in the New Testament, it was the Romans. The Lord comes on a cloud, but guess who was there? The Roman soldiers were destroying that city. But Yeshua said, this is my work. I'm using these Romans to carry out my work. And there were spiritual things. You know, the interesting thing is the writers of that time said there were spiritual signs in the heavens over the city of Jerusalem when this, I mean, because there was a, it wasn't just earthly people. There was a spiritual battle taking place at the same time. He not only destroyed the city, he destroyed all these gods, all right, of the nations that were false and wiped them all out and took everything under submission at that time. So there was a lot more happening than just the city being destroyed. But that was a major, major deal. This is not a good thing for me, but I heard that uh, statement, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Right. Well, somebody read God said, said it. That settles. That settles it. Whether you believe it or not. That's right. <laughs> That's true. You know, when God said, that settles it. It's still right whether you accept it or don't accept it. You know, you're smart, you'll believe it. But it's settled because God is who He is. John? Yes. 45 or 50 years ago, when the only thing that you heard was the, uh, you know, the garbage about He's coming back today. Yeah, dispensational just kind of took over and swept across countries, you know, and it just was grabbed by people. And I think the reason dispensational grabbed so quickly is because just prior to that, okay, the liberals were saying, look, Christianity is false. And the reason we know Christianity is false is because Yeshua said he was coming in that generation. The Bible clearly teaches that he did not come. Christianity is false. So then dispensationalists comes along and go, oh, wait, wait, you forgot about there was a timeout for a while. And so God paused everything, and, you know, he meant when he gets started later, it will come soon. And so they reinvented everything to try to deal with the liberalism because people were actually seeing the problems. And that is a real problem. If Yeshua said he was coming and he didn't, that's a problem. And Christians didn't know how to deal with it. Instead of just saying, he said it, he did it. Because, again, they're all looking for this physical thing that's going to destroy the whole globe and start all over again. Right. Everybody. It's all burned up. Yeah, everything. The whole universe is going to be rearranged, you know, and that's, that's their view, so that's what they get. Really important to because you can refer back to things and exactly. you want to go as far back as you can with the original stuff. Right. Well, instead of just, you know, okay, stars falling from heaven. You you know, most Christians read that, I know what that means. I know what a star is, I know what falling is. They have no clue because when you go back in scripture, what is that? How do they use that? That's speaking of the fall of a nation. It's not talking about the literal stars falling out of the sky. So yeah, with a concordance, like you could look up cloud comings and then boom, it take you back to the language used in, you know, and you go, oh, I see how it was used here. And guess what? Nobody saw Yahweh surfing on a cloud. That's like the example with Rahab. When you read the Hebrew Bible, there's a, a lot of references to where it was written, written in there, you know, unto this day. 
Right. In other words, you can go check it out, is yeah. what they're trying to say. But we can't, because <laughs> it was written to those people. Right. Mm -hmm. And we had to do certain things in order to maybe get to heaven because there was this holy thing <laughs> for us. And mm -hmm. so when I became saved, it was amazing the freedom. I didn't have to, and it was, I was uncomfortable. You don't have to go to Ash Wednesday anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was shocking <laughs> to me. Good. I had freedom, and I didn't even recognize it. But it was such a good feeling now that I've been mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's amazing because you know there's that bondage there. Yeah. You know, there is that bondage. You have to do this, you have to do that. You know, like up in, especially up north, more Mariolatry. You know, you see buses, you know, you got to worship Mary and all. I mean, where do they, you know, how, it's so far from Scripture. I was six months old as a Christian and went and met with some bishop. And he was stuttering and stammering because I'm just tying him in knots. Six months old, you know. I'm saying people are dying around the world and you got... Jesus locked up in your little box and the communion thing there. And he was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you're listening to people's sins and giving them absolution forgiveness, and then you go back to your rectory and you're talking to all your buddies about, guess what this person did? Oh, no. He goes, I, once I leave there, I don't have any remembrance. I'm like, you are such a liar. You know, and I'm, I mean, he's got an ash, he's got an ashtray on his desk. I said, because Kathy worked in the rectory. She knew what went on there. They're eating steak and lobster and joking about everybody's sins. And, you know, we knew what was happening. But, oh, man, I was just, whew. Her parents said, because I wouldn't get married in the Catholic Church. I said, I'm not getting married in the Catholic Church. I won't consider myself married. And her dad says, well, I'm not walking down the aisle. And I'm like, that's your choice. We're getting married in a church that we believe, you know, is real. And he ended up walking her down the aisle. But they said, would you please go talk to Bishop so-and-so? We did. Okay. Well, that didn't go out so good. So will you go talk to Monsignor Slater? Yeah, I'll talk to any one of these goofs you bring on, okay? Because, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm young. I'm as radical as I can be, and I'm ready to fight, okay? You know, these guys. And, and so, yeah, they didn't, you know, but Monsignor Slater told us, if you guys are going to fight over such a little thing as religion, you have no business getting married. And, and we went to visit my pastor, and my pastor prayed with us and, you know, tried to encourage us, and Kathy's... She's seeing the difference all right, all right, all right. You know, she wasn't even a Christian, but she's seeing the difference. Wow, this is different. And again, I got married because I didn't get to Corinthians yet. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to marry an unbeliever, okay? <laughs> God protected me in my ignorance, and he fixed it, okay? Amen. <laughs> he did. I mean, there's no, no way around that. I mean, I was ignorant, and he took care of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Well, you could have saved a lot. I remember reading 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 88. I was sitting on my mother's, I was at my mother's house. I was sitting on the deck of the pool, and I got that book, and I just read the whole thing. And I, when I was done, I was like, we got to get ready. It's coming. You know, it's coming. I mean, he gave the date and everything, you know, and it's just like this intense thing. I called up to order a book. We're sorry. We're closed for the rapture. Seriously, a major book company. No, they let their employees go because the rapture was happening that day because they believed 88 reasons. And then he came out with, whoops, 89 reasons why it'll be in 89. <laughs> and people keep buying the books. It's so crazy. Man, predators will just save you so much aggravation, so much grief, you know. 
Because, yeah, that's intense. I mean, people were selling everything they owned. Or, or uh, Here's another side of it, which I thought was kind of cool. They're charging their cards to the max because we're leaving anyway. <laughs> well, guess what? They had to pay those cards off. Joke's on you. Gary? The, the, uh, in, in the beginning, you were talking about Paul teaching the Jews in Thessalonica in the synagogue that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ. But what proof did he have? They were just to take his word for it? No, he was using the prophecies to prove that. See, that's what they were saying. He's taking the, the scriptures from the Tanakh. Here's what the scriptures say about Messiah. Here's the life of Christ. And they're like, put them together. And they're like, oh my word, he's fulfilling all those. They were waiting. There was a great expectancy at that time for Messiah. A, fur, a fever, like they're, they're looking because they knew something about time and they knew this is, it's coming. And they were expecting. And so he's using that. And of course, it's all about God opening the hearts. You know, God didn't open the heart, they didn't get it. But he's using the scripture to help them open their hearts. Oh, what was his act? Yeah. Well, they showed him the videos. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, I got a video here of, lo of the Lord. He's feeding all, you know. <laughs> Again, this is a supernatural, divine thing. You know, that was a culture that was oral. Okay? They weren't real big on writings. Actually, it's so funny, they didn't actually trust writings. If it's in writing, eh, don't trust it too much. We go by oral stuff. So they pass stuff down oral. Where we're so opposite, if it's oral, we don't trust it. It's got to be written down, you know? And so very, very different culture. But the stories went, you know, those stories of Christ were just everywhere. You know, people were carrying that on and sharing what he, it, it just exploded. But again, it was a God thing. 